welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And by now, I'm sure you've heard an earful of June being celebrated as Gay Pride Month. And I'm also sure that you know about how the Los Angeles Dodgers have chosen the Feast of the Sacred Heart to celebrate a group of men who masquerade as Catholic nuns, uh, drag queens that mock the Virgin Mary and women religious and our Lord Jesus himself through their, uh, frankly, shocking and vulgar displays and behavior. Now, according to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the decision of the Dodgers is, quote, not just offensive and painful to Christians everywhere, it is blasphemy. Now, in response, the bishops have called on Catholics to pray the litany of the Sacred Heart of Jesus on June 16th, the day they've chosen to uh, honor these uh, drag queens, which is also the feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And the bishops have asked this as an act of reparation for the blasphemies against our Lord that we see in our culture today. But before any of this happened, way back, you know, on the 1st of June, which was all of two weeks ago, but it seems like ages, uh, the bishops took to Twitter to reclaim June as the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. They sent out a tweet that said, Join us in honoring the Sacred Heart of Jesus this June a time to deepen our devotion to his endless love and mercy. Let us open our hearts to receive his grace and share his message of hope with the world. And the tweet was accompanied by a picture of the statue of the Sacred Heart of Jesus on a background consisting of the words, June, month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, repeated in large capital letters, you know, a dozen times. Now, by the next day, by June 2nd, the tweet had generated over 100,000 views, many hundreds of retweets, and thousands of likes. So today we're going to be discussing what devotion to the Sacred Heart is really all about, and we'll be looking at the 12 promises of Jesus that are attached to the devotion, and the kind of responses those promises might inspire in us. Also, uh, going to talk about some things you probably don't know about devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and of course more. Speaking of which, I'd like to begin, as usual, with the readings for the upcoming Sunday in the Extraordinary Form, which will be the third Sunday after Pentecost. The epistles taken from 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Uh, it says, Be you humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the time of visitation, casting all your uh, care upon him, for he hath care of you. Be sober and watch, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist ye, strong in the faith, knowing that the same affliction befalls your brethren who are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little, will himself perfect you, and confirm you, and establish you. To him be glory and empire forever and ever. Amen. The first line of this reading says, to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And we often worry about our position and status, and we look for the proper appreciation and acknowledgement for what we do. But St. Peter advises us to remember that God's recognition counts far more than human praise. God is able and willing to bless us, but it will be according to his timing. Right? If you humbly obey God regardless of the present circumstances, then in his good time he will honor you, either in this life or in the next. 
Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you, says our first pope. Now, trying to carry all of your worries and stresses and daily struggles by yourself is a sign that you probably haven't really surrendered your life to our Lord. You know, in the Beatitudes, he teaches us not to be worried about anything because God is aware of all our needs. But you know, it takes humility to recognize, first off, that God cares for you personally. It takes humility to admit your need for his care, you know, that you can't do it all by yourself. And it especially takes humility to let others in God's family, that is to say, others, uh, members of the body of Christ, which is the church, to let them help you. You see, and I tend to believe that most of my struggles are caused by my own sin and stupidity. Uh, but I should not, on that account, be tempted to think that it's not God's concern. And when you turn to God in repentance, especially in the sacrament of penance, when you receive absolution, he will lift the weight of those struggles off your shoulders. I went to confession last weekend, and as always, when I heard the words of absolution, I breathed a sigh of relief, and I could feel the burden being lifted from me. So giving over your anxieties to God calls for action on your part, not just passivity. You know, to be poor in spirit means to accept whatever happens to you as coming from the hand of a loving father. But as Catholics, we don't fall into quietism which is just submitting to your circumstances. On the contrary, we submit ourselves to the Lord who is in control of circumstances. To him be empire forever. So uh, St. Peter also says that your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Have you ever seen one of those nature shows? You know that lions tend to attack attack animals that are sick or young or, or straggling you know, from the herd. In other words, they choose victims that are weak or alone or not aware of the danger. And St. Peter warns us to keep watch for Satan, especially when we're suffering or being persecuted. When we are feeling weak or helpless or alone or are so focused on our troubles that we forget to watch for danger, that is when we are especially vulnerable to Satan's attacks, which means that during times of suffering, you should keep your eyes on Christ. And, and pray and seek the support of other Christians and resist the devil. And then St. James says he will flee from you. And lastly, when you're suffering, especially when you're feeling betrayed or persecuted, plenty of that going around today, uh, it can feel like that pain is never going to end. And so St. Peter offered the suffering and the persecuted faithful of his day a broader perspective. He tells them and us, uh, that their suffering would only last a little while in comparison with eternity. Some of the first readers of this epistle would have been strengthened and delivered in their own lifetime. Others would only be released from their suffering by death. And all of God's faithful, and that includes you and me, all of God's faithful who cooperate with the graces Jesus won on the Holy Cross and communicates to us through the sacraments he instituted, those who remain in the state of grace are given the promise of eternal life with Christ, where there will be no more suffering. As it says in Revelations 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be death, neither will be there any mourning or crying or pain. And that's no nonsense. Now for the gospel for the third Sunday after Pentecost, which is Luke 5.1-10. through 10, now the publicans and sinners drew near unto him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. 
and he spoke to them this parable, saying, What man of you that hath an hundred sheep, and if he shall lose one of them, doth he not leave the ninety-nine in the desert, and go after that which was lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, it lay it upon his shoulders rejoicing. And coming home, called together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I say to you that even so there shall be joy in heaven upon one sinner that doth penance, more than upon ninety-nine just who need not penance. Or what woman, having ten groats, if she lose one groat, doth not light a candle, and sweep the house, and seek diligently until she find it? And when she hath found it, call together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the groat which I had lost. So I say to you, there shall be joy before the angels of God upon one sinner doing penance. As far the words of the Holy Gospel. Well, in these parables, we see that God's concerned for sinners or unbelievers, those who are far off. It is his joy to seek out and find those who are lost. And in the name of God's love for sinners, Jesus overthrows several customs of his day. Uh, Mainly, he refuses to accept the self-righteous attitudes uh, held by the scribes and Pharisees. Because Jesus came precisely to offer salvation to sinners, he, he didn't worry about the effect that associating with them might have on his reputation. You know, and it may seem silly for a shepherd to leave 99 sheep to go in search of just one, but he knows that the 99 will be safe in the sheepfold while the lost sheep is in danger. And because each sheep is of great value, it is worthwhile for the shepherd to search for the lost one. And in the parable of the lost groat, which is a word meaning coin, uh, there's some background might be in order here. Uh, in Jesus' day, Palestinian women received 10 silver coins as a wedding gift. And these coins held a sentimental value beyond their face value. So to lose one would be like losing your wedding ring. Just as a woman would rejoice at finding that lost coin or a lost wedding ring, so the angels rejoice over a repentant sinner, our Lord tells us. So Jesus is teaching us that every individual is precious to God, that he grieves with us over every loss and rejoices with us whenever one of his lost sheep is found and brought into the kingdom. Hey, if that's for me, tell him I'm on the radio. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not difficult, you know, not terribly difficult to understand a God that would forgive sinners when they come to him for mercy. But Jesus is revealing in these parables that God tenderly searches for sinners and then joyfully forgives them. See, this is an extraordinary love. This is the kind of love that prompted Jesus to come to earth to search for lost people and to save them. It's the way the the, the greatest verse in the Bible puts it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him may not perish but may attain eternal life. And Jesus himself said in John 15, 13, no one can have greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. This is the extraordinary love that God has for you. So if you're ever feeling alone or far from God, don't despair. Remember, he's searching for you. And that's no nonsense.
Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. And the Catholic Church traditionally dedicates the entire month of June to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And the solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus is celebrated in June on uh, Friday this year on the 16th of June, this coming Friday. And devotion to the Sacred Heart um, really began in the Middle Ages with the likes of Saints Bernard and uh, Anselm. And we'll talk in a minute about in a minute about another medieval saint who was devoted to the Sacred Heart. But the devotion really became widespread in the 17th century following the visions of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque that occurred between 1673 and 1675. Now, she was a French nun of the Order of the Visitation of Our Lady, and Jesus appeared to her four times in Paralimonial, France. He revealed to her his love for humankind through his sacred heart. And according to St. Margaret Mary, quote, Jesus wanted to bestow upon men during these final centuries. Well, that's something. There's an eye opening. These final centuries. Such loving redemption in order to snatch them from the control of Satan, whom he intended to destroy. In 1856, Pope Pius IX made the solemnity of the sacred heart of Jesus obligatory for the whole church. So it's uh, a relatively new feast, although it's an old devotion. Now, the the image of the Sacred Heart is very familiar to Catholics, um, perhaps the most moving emblem of his infinite love for us. But the devotion can be a little confusing, I think, especially for our separated brethren. Because for one thing, the images of the Sacred Heart range from, I mean, just an image of the heart itself, pierced, topped with flames and a a cross, encircled by a crown of thorns, um, you know, to the familiar image of Jesus exposing his sacred heart to the image of Jesus holding a sacred heart in his hand and extending it as if he were presenting us with a gift. Um, and the, the point is that these images are not meant to represent the sacred heart as something separate from the person of Christ, much less as an inanimate object. Uh, the image of the sacred heart is meant as a visible symbol of the living heart of the resurrected Christ, the Christ's beating heart the center of all his affections, the fountain of all his virtues, right? So it, it's, it's inseparable from Jesus because it simply is devotion to him, devotion to his heart. Now, there's also 12 promises attached to the devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, and later on we're going to look at those promises and the kind of responses that they might inspire in us. But first I wanted to talk about a few things that you may not know about the sacred heart of Jesus. First being is that it dates uh, back at least to the 12th century, right? The devotion goes back further than Margaret Mary Alacoque. I mentioned Saints Bernard and Anselm, but I recently saw an article on yet another 12th century saint. Uh, it was on Alatea. It was called This Little Known Saint is a Perfect Mentor this month, right? Being the month of June. And the article was about Saint Lutgarda. She was a Belgian saint born in the 12th century, but she didn't have the kind of pious start in life that you you often read about when you're talking about the saints, especially medieval saints, right? In fact, she only entered the Benedictine monastery to avoid embarrassment because her family had squandered her dowry in a, in a failed business deal, and so her parents couldn't no longer afford to arrange a good marriage for her. And so, and so she went to the convent for shame. You know, and naturally, one shouldn't enter religious life because they're running away from something, uh, but running towards someone, namely Christ. So, not surprisingly, she lived in community for uh, some time without, you know, any piety. But eventually, 
she took to her prayers, she embraced the life, and she began receiving visions of Jesus. You know, at one point, our Lord said that he would grant her whatever she requested of him. And after kind of a false start, she, she boldly asked Jesus to give her his heart. And so after her, her rather inauspicious beginning in religion, Lutgarda became the first known woman ever to receive the stigmata. She was also known to miraculously levitate and, and to fast heroically and to speak familiarly with the saints and with the souls in purgatory. And of course, she was one of the very first promoters of devotion to the sacred heart. And her story is an encouragement, as is, the, or as I should say, as are the promises of the sacred heart <clears throat> to, to even the most lukewarm of Christians. And uh, you might be interested to know that her feast is on the 16th of June, which this year happens to be the date upon which um, the, the Feast of the Sacred Heart falls, right? Friday after the second Sunday of Pentecost. So you might make a note to ask for uh, some special intercession of this saint, from this saint, on the, ask her to pray for you, to intercede with you, uh, with the Sacred Heart, on the Feast of the Sacred Heart, which this year is also her feast day. All right, something else you might also know, speaking of the, uh, the Middle Ages, the first hymn to the Sacred Heart comes from the 13th century, when uh, the renowned medieval Norbertine, Blessed Herman Joseph, composed a hymn called Sumi Regis Coraveto, which means Heart of the Highest King, I Greet Thee. Uh, number three, when the feast was first celebrated uh, back in the 17th century, St. John Eudes, who founded the Congregation of Jesus and Mary, was, one of, uh, was the one to compose the, the prayers for the office and the Mass for the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And these prayers continued to be used as the feasts spread throughout, of the, world, throughout the world. And uh, in the 19th century, Pope Leo XIII honored St. John Eudes with the title, Author of the Liturgical Worship of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Holy Heart of Mary. And that's something else we'll talk about uh, a little later. The day following the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus is the Memorial of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, oh, all the details of the modern devotion as we observe them today were revealed to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque back in the middle of the 17th century. And she said that Jesus gave her precise instructions describing the, the full modern devotion to the Sacred Heart. And that includes the reception of the Eucharist on the nine first Fridays, the Eucharistic adoration on Thursdays, the celebration of a feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And, uh, and after the final vision, she reported everything she'd seen to a priest who was a friend who encouraged her to write it all down. And her book was uh, widely circulated, widely read throughout France and England uh, back in the day. Uh, also, in the late 19th century, uh, Blessed Mary of the Divine Heart, who was a nun of the Congregation of Our Lady of Charity of the Good Shepherd, claimed to have experienced a number of visions of Jesus herself. And in one of the last ones, she said that Jesus told her to write to Pope Leo XIII, asking him to consecrate the whole world to the sacred heart of Jesus. You know, remember, it would be his successor that made the feast obligatory uh, throughout the church. Uh, but when Leo XIII received her letter, I mean, he was skeptical at first, and he just dismissed uh, her claims. And then a few months later, she sent another letter 
in which she made the request again, but she also mentioned the Pope's ill health and said that Christ had assured her that he would live uh, at least until he performed this consecration. So a few months later, he promulgated an encyclical saying that the whole world uh, should be consecrated, would be consecrated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus a month later on June the 11th, 1899. Pope Leo did live until the consecration, but Blessed Mary of the Divine Heart died three days before the consecration on Friday, June the 8th, 1899, which was, wait for it, the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And finally, uh, the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus has a particularly Latin character. And as a result, uh, some of our separated brethren, the Eastern Orthodox Christians, are against the devotion uh, because they say it could imply an heretical Christology. Now, I've already kind of spoken to that, and um, as did Pius XII. Uh, in response to those criticisms, he argued back in 1956 that, as we said before, the, the Sacred Heart is only venerated insofar as it is the heart of Jesus, that it belongs to the divine person of the Son of God and, and not, not some separate thing. Therefore, it is a legitimate devotion because it's simply devotion to Jesus. And, and it should probably be noted that subsequently, some Eastern Rite Catholic uh, churches okay, have taken up devotion to the Sacred Heart. But the practice remains controversial. Uh, with some critics denouncing it as a Latinization, right, which is a term they use when they think Eastern Christianity is being unduly influenced by the traditions of the West. And there you have it. Um, it's uh, some things you may not have known about devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And by the way, uh, a fair amount of that information was taken from an article on Church Pop, uh, which was called um, six things you didn't know about devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And you will find a link in the show notes along with a link to the uh, Alatia article about uh, St. Ludgarda. All right. So um, the image of the Immaculate Heart. Okay. I, I said we we're going to look at the 12 promises of the Sacred Heart in a bit, and we will. But uh, as promised, though, I'm going to switch gears and look at this coming Saturday's feast, which is the Memorial of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Now, and the image of the, or the Immaculate Heart of Mary is rather like the image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. You know, it, it's a heart, of course, but rather than uh, a wound from the spear, Mary's heart is pierced by a sword, as Holy Simeon prophesied at the presentation of Jesus in the temple. Uh, the Immaculate Heart is likewise encircled by a crown, but it's, uh, rather than a crown of thorns, it's a chaplet of roses. And like the Sacred Heart, the Immaculate Heart is topped with flames, uh, these flames representing her love for Jesus and her love for us. And these two devotions are complementary. They go together. You know, if you were to visit my home, you would see on the wall directly opposite the front door images of both the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, because you really can't have one without the other, especially when you consider that our Lord took his sacred flesh, his sacred body, entirely from his Blessed Mother. You know, sometimes people wonder what Jesus looks like because there's no description of him in the Bible. Well, I think it's safe to say that if you asked someone who knew him during his earthly life, they would have said he looks like his mother. Now, the whole month of August is dedicated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but the memorial of the Immaculate Heart falls on the Saturday after Corpus Christi. 
and since Corpus Christi is now celebrated on Sunday, the Memorial of the Immaculate Heart falls on the following Saturday, which is, you know, after the solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So as to the meaning of the Immaculate Heart, uh, uh, this is according to EWTN, quote, the Immaculate Heart of Mary signifies, first of all, the great purity and love of the heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary for God. This purity is manifested in her yes to the Father at the Incarnation. Her love for and cooperation with the Incarnate Son in his redemptive mission and her docility to the Holy Spirit, enabling her to remain free of the stain of personal sin throughout her life. Right, she was conceived immaculately, but then she also never uh, committed any personal sins. Mary's Immaculate Heart, therefore, points us to her profound interior life, where she experienced both joys and sorrows, yet remained faithful, as we too are called to do. And this year we will celebrate the Memorial of the Immaculate Heart of Mary on June 17. Okay, when we come back, the promises, the 12 promises of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and what our response might be. Coming up right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Before we get to the 12 promises of the Sacred Heart, I wanted to mention one last thing about the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And that is that Pope Francis uh, famously consecrated Russia, Ukraine, and all of humanity in union with uh, the bishops around the world uh, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary last year. It's on March 25th at uh, 6.30 p.m. Rome time in St. Peter's Basilica. And the consecration came in response to numerous bishops requesting the Pope consecrate Russia in hopes of obtaining peace amidst the ongoing war in Ukraine. And so before a statue of Our Lady of Fatima, the Pope read his full consecration prayer and bishops around the world did the same at the same time. My wife Betty and I were uh, privileged to be at Christ Cathedral to participate in the consecration with our bishop, Kevin Van. Now, whether or not you believe this consecration fulfilled the request of Our Lady of Fatima regarding the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart, that's your business. But uh, as for me, uh, it was very powerful to be there for the consecration and then to watch our bishop kneel in front of a statue of Our Lady of Fatima and lead the congregation in a decade of the Holy Rosary. I, that's really not something I expected to see in my lifetime, and I, for one, will never forget it. And that's no nonsense. Okay, finally, the 12 promises attached to the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the kind of responses they might inspire in us. Um, you know what? I'm actually going to kick that down the road. I'm going to do that just a little later on because um, um, I wanted to uh, um, unpack, you know, the readings um, for, you know, the third Sunday after Pentecost, which we did earlier in the program. But if you recall, the epistle was First uh, Peter 5, 6 through 11. And verse 8 is to be sober and vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. And on account of this verse, the traditional moral topic for this uh, Sunday, uh, next Sunday, is temperance or sobriety uh, versus intemperance or drunkenness. Now, Catholics are not Puritans, right? The use of... Uh, wine in, in the Passover, in the temple worship, and of course the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It's all well established in the Holy Bible. 
Our Lord's first miracle was to change water into wine for the celebration of a marriage feast. So the Bible doesn't call for believers to be teetotalers. However, there are no shortage of warnings in the Bible concerning drinking, uh, especially the, the uh, overconsumption of alcohol. Now, you'll recall that after the, the waters of the flood receded in Genesis chapter 9, Noah, the, the great hero of the faith, got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. So it's kind of a, a poor example of godliness to his sons. And, and what follows, I mean, I know that some would allude to there being uh, something about uh, sexual sin being involved here, but I, I go with the traditional uh, idea that what follows is an abuse of power. The sons making themselves superiors and judges of their father, who is humiliated and dishonored. You know, see, to, you know, to the Hebrews, wine was an important staple, but drunkenness is immoral and dishonorable, and it's humiliating. It provokes ridicule. It leads to idolatry. It incites violence. It, it, it causes injustice and poverty. It makes a person subject to their enemies, right? And it is especially unseemly uh, for the leaders of nations. And, and perhaps this story is, is in Genesis to show us that even godly people can sin and that their bad influence has an effect on their family. Because all the, although wicked people had been killed in the flood, you know, the possibility of evil still existed in the hearts of Noah and his family, as we can see from the events that followed. Ham's mocking attitude revealed a severe lack of respect for his father and for God. And this, again, on, on account of, you know, the, the catalyst for this was Noah's drunkenness. Or you consider Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35. Who endures misery? Who endures remorse? Who has strife? Who has anxiety? Who becomes bruised without knowing the reason? Who has blackened eyes? Those who linger over their wine too long. Those who sample blended wines. Do not note how red the wine is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. For in the end, its bite is like that of a serpent or that of a poisonous viper. Then your eyes will behold strange sights and your heart will utter distorted words. You will become like one sleeping at sea or clinging to the top of a mast. You will say, they struck me, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When will I awaken so that I can seek another drink? Now see, this, this biblical portrait of the drunkard is just lacking in no detail. And that last verse probably indicates the most damaging effect of drunkenness on the drunkard, which is the desire to drink again, right? That total lack of concern for, for bodily or even spiritual harm. And we see here that drinking, right, that, that, that soothing comfort of alcohol is only temporary. You know, getting drunk might provide a temporary escape from your problems, but real relief only comes from dealing with the cause of, of your problems, your anguish, your, your sorrow, turning to God to find peace. You know, rather than losing yourself in alcohol, the scriptures would have you to find yourself in God. And again, this is not an indictment of alcohol, but rather it's abuse. Israel was a wine-producing country. In the Old Testament, wine presses bursting with new wine are a sign of blessing. Proverbs 9 even says that wisdom has set her table with wine. But the inspired authors of the Old Testament were well aware of the dangers of drinking too much. It dulls the senses. It limits uh, clear judgment. It lowers the capacity for control. And it destroys a person's efficiency. Right? Proverbs 21 is very practical. Proverbs 21, 17. 
<clears throat> whoever craves pleasure will end up in want. Whoever loves wine and oil will never grow rich. To make wine or other alcohol an end in itself, to make a drink a means of self-indulgence or an escape from life is to misuse it and to invite the terrible consequences of the drunkard. So that's the, that's uh, the Old Testament. And th there's a warning in the New as well, though. The, the same St. Paul who counseled Timothy on the moderate use of wine, right? First Timothy 5.3, stop drinking nothing but water and take a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Uh, he also had these words for the Ephesians, which might well be addressed to us today. Therefore, he said, take care to live as intelligent people and do not be like those who are senseless. So in other words, he says, be no-nonsense Catholics. Uh, he continues, make the most of the present time, for this is a wicked age. Do not be foolish, but recognize what is the will of the Lord. Do not get drunk on wine, which can lead to debauchery. Rather, be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with one another. Sing and chant to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So St. Paul, and that's Ephesians 5, 15 through 20, by the way. St. Paul contrasts getting drunk with wine, which produces, you know, a temporary escape, a temporary high, to being filled with the Spirit, which produces lasting joy. See, getting drunk with wine is associated by him with the old way of life and, and its selfish desires. Whereas in Christ, he says, we have a better joy, a higher and longer lasting, one to cure our depression and monotony and tension. We shouldn't be concerned with how much of the Holy Spirit we have, but, but how much of us the Holy Spirit has. Our Lady of America says that we need to be devoted to the indwelling of the Holy Trinity by remaining in the state of grace to submit yourself, ourselves daily to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to pray for his guidance every day, and to draw on his power. So that the Come Holy Spirit, very powerful prayer, and a good part of your morning offering, or any time before you're going to, to uh, do some good work, to call upon the power of the Holy Spirit to assist you. Okay, now, <laughs> this time for real, the 12 Promises, the 12 promises attached to the devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. You know, St. Margaret Mary Alacoque received a message of divine love that would uh, transform the lives of countless faithful. Uh, you can see how heavily, especially my prayer books and stuff from the 19th century, very heavily uh, uh, leaning on the devotion to the sacred heart. It really inspired a worldwide movement. And, and the Sacred Heart of Jesus devotion serves as a powerful reminder of God's infinite love and mercy. So those, those private revelations granted to Sister Margaret Mary Alacoque provide a powerful invitation to all of us to encounter the compassionate heart of Jesus and to respond with love and devotion. Uh, Jesus made at least 12 promises to her about how he would help those who honor the Sacred Heart. He said, Look at this heart which has loved people so much, and yet they do not want to love me in return. Through you, my divine heart wishes to spread its love everywhere on earth, but I believe these promises deserve a response from us. St. Augustine famously said that we speak to God when we pray, and he answers when we read the Holy Scripture. Or Bishop Sheen would say prayer is a dialogue. 
And in these promises, Jesus speaks to us. And so I'd like to look at those promises to see how we might respond, what response they might inspire us in us, uh, either in prayer or action or both. So number one, I'll give them all the graces necessary in their state of life. This is a promise of grace for daily living. Jesus provides all the graces we need, the graces that, that make you holy and pleasing to God and are the very life of your soul. At Holy Mass, the graces gained for you on the Holy Cross are communicated to your soul, especially, of course, in Holy Communion. The, the grace that gives light to your mind and strength to your will to empower you to do good and avoid evil. And the best way to show our gratitude for his grace is to take care to remain in it. So our response should be to always be mindful of his grace and to go to confession regularly so that we may receive him worthily and often in Holy Communion. That's number one. Number two, he promised, I will establish peace in their homes. Jesus' parting gift to the apostles was peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Be not afraid. Here, <clears throat> Jesus promises peace to your family in this promise. So in gratitude, we should pray that all the members of the family would keep from offending him by mortal sin and for the love of his sacred heart to fill our hearts to help us forgive one another and live in peace and to pray that we would enjoy his peace in your family on earth so that we can be united again in heaven and remain with him forever. More on this when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholics, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about the 12 promises of the Sacred Heart and how we might respond to them in this kind of ongoing conversation with Jesus. And uh, looking at the clock here, I doubt very seriously we'll be able to get through all 12. And so I just want to let you know that um, where, however far we get, if we don't make it to the end, we'll just let it spill over onto next week's uh, podcast. Uh, in the meantime, the third of the 12 promises of the Sacred Heart is, I will comfort them in all their afflictions. So how do we respond to this? I mean, Jesus knows how weak we are. He knows how often we're afraid. That's why he keeps telling us not to be. Remember, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus inviting you to his sacred heart for comfort, especially in your afflictions and your sufferings. Come to Jesus in Holy Communion and you receive the strength and comfort that he promised. Number four, I will be their secure refuge against all the snares of their enemies in life and above all in death. Sacred Heart of Jesus is your refuge against all the dangers and evils in this world, especially at the hour of your death. You know, when you make a spiritual communion, which you can and should do many times a day, you pray, never let me be separated from you by sin. And this is a, a plea for help to fight bravely when the enemies of your soul 
the world, the flesh, and the devil tempt you to falter in your love for God. So our response to this fourth promise is to trust in his strength and his grace to keep us close to him, especially at the hour of death when you will need him most. Number five, I will bestow abundant blessings on all their undertakings. Well, naturally, we should pray Jesus for his blessing on all that we do, whether work or study, recreation, our relations with others, etc. We should always pray that whatever we do be for his greater honor and glory and for the salvation of our souls. And remember what he himself said in John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. And that's why you should always begin the day with an offering of all your thoughts, words, and works, and ask Jesus to be close to you and guide you in whatever you do to enjoy, uh, and guide you in whatever you do to enjoy his promise of blessing. Now, the next three promises are for the different types of believers or the different uh, places that they might be, the, the fervent, the lukewarm, and sinners. So taking the last first, number six, sinners will find in my heart the source and infinite ocean of mercy. Think about the act of contrition. We say that we confess to the sacred heart that I've often offended you, but I'm really sorry for my sins, truly sorry. <clears throat> and I shall you know, henceforth endeavor with the help of your grace not to offend you again. You know, you're saying to the Lord, you promised to forgive sinners, forgive me. And prayer will help you to, to awaken in yourself true contrition and the desire to confess your sins in order to receive Jesus worthily in Holy Communion and thereby receive the grace to do good and avoid evil. You know, we keep coming back to that. But really, that, that's the, the whole point of these promises. You know, remember, we've all sinned. Our Lady of Fatima said that many people go to hell because they have no one to pray and make sacrifices for them. So pray especially for, for your family, because we have all sometimes displeased God. Petition the Sacred Heart to, to keep you and to keep your family close to him, and, and that he would forgive all your sins and, and for the sins of the whole world. Uh, this is why he came and suffered and died, is to make up for our sins. Number seven, the lukewarm, right? Lukewarm souls, it's <clears throat> lukewarm souls, sorry, rented lips, shall become fervent. The lukewarm have to first recognize their need for divine grace, without which you can't be holy. They should pray to the sacred heart to not allow them to neglect their souls that Jesus died for, but rather do all they can to cooperate with his grace to save their souls. They should pray for the grace to live a good life, which is the proof of their love. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. If ever you're lukewarm, just tell Jesus, I love you. I want to keep your commandments. Give me your love and help me to know you better. And your lukewarmness will be, become uh, zeal. Number eight, fervent souls. Fervent souls shall quickly mount to high perfection a promise of the sacred heart, right? Uh, and the concern of the fervent soul is Jesus' command to be perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect. So the fervent 
soul should especially pray for the grace of the Beatitudes, to be poor in spirit that they may only seek after heavenly riches, to be meek that they might overcome all anger, to seek comfort for their sorrows only in the sacred heart, to hunger and thirst for holiness, to love God with their whole being, to be merciful to their neighbors so that they might receive mercy, to be pure of heart and so beloved of God, to be uh, peacemakers by, by keeping peace with themselves and with others, and to rejoice in suffering and persecution. To do this is to accept his promise to be the guide to high perfection. Number nine, I will place I will bless every place in which an image of my heart exposed is honored. When you give the image of the sacred heart a place of honor in your home, you dedicate yourself to him in a special way. And you ask him to bless the family that he chose for you on earth with happiness and peace. Honor his sacred heart in your home. And it's a plea to keep your family from danger, especially spiritual danger to help you in time of need, to give you the grace to be like your own holy family. It's a visible sign of your sincere desire that he fill your home with peace and love and be enthroned as king of your souls. May his sacred heart live and reign in our families. Amen. Number 10, I will give to priests the gift of touching the most hardened hearts. Jesus is our eternal high priest. So we should pray often that he will pour out the life-giving graces of his loving heart upon his priests to make them living images of himself. We should pray often that Jesus would, through the ministry of his priests, uh, uh, we would save souls and give them the special grace of drawing sinners to his sacred heart so that they might find forgiveness and salvation. May his kingdom come to the hearts of all people through the zealous work of truly saintly priests. Especially, we should ask the blessing of the Sacred Heart of Jesus upon every priest who has ever done good to us, any priest who's ever done good to you or to your family, to make a special offering to the Sacred Heart for them. Number 11, those who shall promote this devotion shall have their names written in my heart, never to be effaced. So the obvious response to this promise is to promote devotion to the Sacred Heart. And we begin by asking God to help us be devoted to him. And, and to make him better known and loved. We have to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. He's not a way. He's not one way among many. He's not even the preferred way. It's the only way. So pray that he reveal to you that way and give you a deep faith to believe his truth. And then pray for all those who honor his sacred heart that they might become apostles to make him known and loved and may his kingdom come through their prayers and good example. And it looks like we made it. Number 12, I promise you in the excessive mercy of my heart that my all-powerful love will grant to all those who receive Holy Communion on the first Fridays in nine consecutive months the grace of final perseverance. They shall not die in my disgrace, nor without receiving their sacraments. My divine heart shall be their safe refuge in this last moment. If you haven't made the first nine Fridays, and it, you know, it can be harder than it sounds, 
especially once you've made this conscious commitment that the first Friday every month you're going to uh, go to Mass and receive Holy Communion worthily. Uh, you know, if you haven't made those first five Friday or ten, nine Fridays, rather, according to this instruction, if you're well disposed, why not start this Friday on the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus? And, you know, even if you're a daily communicant, you may never have made that conscious offering of nine consecutive first Fridays in honor of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So why not start this Friday? The benefits, as they say, are out of this world. And that's no nonsense. O Sacred Heart of Jesus, burning with love of us, make our hearts like unto thine. Amen. O Sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for listening. What a joy to share uh, about this devotion, how, how important, how wonderful it is. I mean, it's such, such a blessing to be Catholic, isn't it? I mean, that's no nonsense. All right. Uh, also, remember that the bishops of the United States, our own bishops, have asked us to faithfully pray the litany, or ask the faithful, I should say, to pray the litany of the Sacred Heart this Friday, the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus as an act of reparation for the blasphemies against our Lord that we see in our culture today, especially the many outrages committed against his sacred heart uh, during so-called Pride Month, especially by the blasphemous group of drag queens that call themselves, these men who call themselves the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Uh, you'll find the litany of the Sacred Heart in most good Catholic prayer books. Certainly, it's available online. Also, if you are able, that's this feast of the Sacred Heart, of course, is the day that the Dodgers decided to honor uh, the sisters, quote unquote, of the uh, perpetual indulgence. And, um, you know, so we are having a uh, Catholics to Catholics and Virgin Most Powerful have uh, come together to sponsor a, uh, a prayers of reparation. And it's going to happen starting at three o'clock at uh, Dodger Stadium in parking lot 13. Terry will be there. Uh, Jesse will be there. Johnny Romero uh, is going to come. Uh, Bishop Strickland will be there and a host of others, as they say. So if you would like to join in uh, this uh, act of reparation, uh, you can find out all the information on our website. Just go to vmpr.org and uh, it's right on the homepage. You can see the the uh, the time and the place and, uh, and all the details there. And uh, in the meantime, I just want to personally say thank you. I want to personally encourage you to um, develop or deepen your devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and to say thank you, especially uh, for your prayers on behalf of Virgin Most Powerful Radio and for your much-needed financial support. And until next time, I just want to say this is Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.